It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 193 for May 23rd, 2010, recorded May 21st, 2010. Would you like a smart way to make your computer dumb? Mainframe computers and mini computers are designed to be used with what are called dumb terminals, just video screens with a keyboard but no computer. Years ago, a terminal on my desk connected me to a Digital Equipment Corporation 1170 mini computer running RISTS, R-S-T-S. stands for Resource Sharing Time Sharing. This was eventually replaced by a personal computer, but the PC needed to connect to the DEC mini computer, so we used a terminal emulation program that made the PC look like a dumb terminal to the mini computer. Fast forward a couple of decades. At the office, you may still need to connect to a corporate computer running some legacy software, and if so, you'll still need to make your computer look like a dumb terminal. If so, you should take a look at Van Dyke's Secure CRT. Most of the applications I tell you about would fit into what's called the Soho market. Soho, in this case, is not an acronym for South of Houston, but for small office, home office. Secure CRT doesn't exactly fit into the Soho category. I found Secure CRT to be the best terminal emulator for many years. And the latest version of Secure CRT, version 6.5, has an updated user interface with tabs, real-time keyword highlighting, and a variety of other improvements. The purpose of any terminal emulation application is to create a terminal window that provides access to the computer's command line interface and connects the desktop computer to a mainframe system or to a computer that's running Linux, Unix, or some other operating system. These connections can be made via a modem, a telnet session on a network, or a secure shell session, SSH. Secure CRT supports SSH, Telnet, R-Login, Serial, and the Telephony Application Programming Interface, or TAPI, protocols. The primary advantage of SSH is, as the name suggests, security. Login, data transfer, and terminal sessions are all encrypted, and that means nobody else can see your data. The most common terminal types follow the DEC or WISE standards, and Secure CRT supports the DEC standards, VT100, VT102, and VT220, as well as WISE 50 and 60, ANSI, SCO ANSI, Xterm, and Linux consoles. Secure CRT goes well beyond the standards by making it possible to have many sessions open simultaneously, each in its own tab, and by allowing users to establish sessions that exceed standard terminal line length. I really like that feature. If you use scripts to speed your work, you can even attach those scripts to a button for easy access. The first time you connect to a secure site, Secure CRT will ask you to confirm the security key. This needs to be done only once. Although Secure CRT can run as a standard Telnet application, you really should use secure connections whenever you can. A welcome addition is ActiveX scripting support. By turning on the Secure CRT macro recorder to capture keystrokes and actions required to perform a task that you need to repeat, you'll have a script that you can fine-tune and use. As with most applications that record macros, the recorded macro will probably need some editing. The advantage is that the macro will repeatedly and consistently perform the task. It won't ever be distracted and forget to do something important, and it won't mistype a command. 
Windows has a built-in Telnet application, but it's not secure. Starting with Vista, Microsoft even disables Telnet by default. If you want to use the built-in Telnet function, you have to enable it. So that's just one more reason to try Van Dyke Secure CRT. Van Dyke provides a 30-day free trial. To obtain it, you do have to fill out a form, and the company will contact you after you've downloaded the application. The contact is by email, and it is, of course, a sales effort, but very low-key. The primary purpose of the message, actually, is to answer any usage questions you might have before you buy the program. Van Dyke Software has been around since 1995. It's located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The first product, the CRT Terminal Emulator, was released to coincide with Windows 95. Secure CRT is at version 6.5. The bottom line on Secure CRT, this is terminal emulation done right. If Secure CRT has a disadvantage, it's the price. The $100 price tag includes one year of support and updates, but not SecureFX, which is a secure FTP application. Adding SecureFX, which integrates nicely with SecureTRT, adds another $30. But that's the only disadvantage, price. The wealth of features goes a long way toward justifying that price. So SecureCRT receives a rating of four cats. For more information, visit the Van Dyke website. You'll find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I seem to have received a Photoshop question from Vista. No, not the operating system. The question is from a reader in Vista, California. Here's the question. I still miss how to use layers, and last week's article on what you did to the Katie Phyllis photo provides me with an example. I would still save the photo with a new name, clone the grass in place, and flatten. Then I would do the same thing to get the legs in place. The two things I don't get are the advantage of doing it on separate layers and how to get just the new legs I want in a new layer without extensive painstaking erasing of the rest of the picture that I don't want to insert. Okay, so in all fairness, there was no question mark in there, and it really wasn't a question, but nonetheless, I feel an illustrated example coming on. And to see the illustrated example, you'll, of course, have to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. I have to admit that at one time, I didn't see the value of layers either, but eventually I grew tired of returning to an image that I had modified the previous day, last week or six months ago. Invariably, I would see something that could be improved, but there was no way to roll back or modify any of my changes. I had made the changes destructively to the image itself. To tweak the image, I would have to start with the original all over again, and make most of the previous changes, adding or removing steps that I thought would help. When you use layers, that problem ceases to exist. One of the best explanations of layers is by Adobe's Michael Ninnis. His Photoshop CS4 blend mode magic at lynda.com makes extensive use of layers. The lynda.com site makes some of the sessions available without charge so that prospective students can decide whether a particular session is one that answers questions they have. So you might want to visit the site and take a look. You'll find a link, of course, from the TechBiter Roadwide website. Photoshop magicians often use a dozen or more layers on an image, and I've seen some with more than 100 layers. My use of layers is really pretty simplistic. So let me deconstruct the image and build it again. On the previous program, I described why I wanted to change the position of Katie's feet, so I won't repeat that here. You can always go back to the previous program and take a look. The first step was to convert the single-layer background image to a layer. 
This isn't always an essential step, but it's needed most of the time, so I just do it automatically. In the images on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I've pulled the layers palette off the interface and dragged it out onto the image so that you can see it as I work on the image. I created three additional blank layers and attached a layer mask to each of them. I called the layer above the base layer New Grass, because that's where I planned to put the grass that would replace Katie's feet and legs. The next layer up is New Legs, because it contains the legs and the feet from the other picture. An important point to note in this image is that in the process of placing the new legs, I cut off part of Katie's thumb. I'm pretty sure she'd like to have the thumb back, so I'll show you how I get that back with a layer mask. There's also evidence of a third hand in the picture. In one of the images I used, Katie had her arm around her mother, but in the other image, she had her left arm at her side. So on the website, you'll see an image in which I've turned on the layer mask with the image of the legs. The layer mask is used to make some of the grass invisible, and by doing that, I can make part of the new grass layer and the base layer visible. The key point here is that I'm controlling transparency, not erasing part of an image or a layer. Erasing is destructive, but I can always return to the layer mask and modify it, or even remove it entirely if I want to. The base part of the image is always there. To hide the extra hand, I grabbed another bit of the other image. It's a rectangular chunk, and its presence is quite obvious in the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But, of course, I can use a layer mask to fix that. Even after I did that, the transition was somewhat visible. So on the TechBiter Worldwide website, we'll take a look at this composite image, layer by layer. We start with the base layer and the layer mask active. Now, in some ways, it really wasn't necessary to have a layer mask on this layer, because all I was doing was erasing Katie's legs, and I was going to place grass on top of them anyway, but I wanted to make sure that I could see the area that needed to be filled. The next level up is the grass area, and notice how it fades toward the edges. Next layer up is the legs, and I've modified the edges somewhat so they're no longer straight lines, but if I were to do this again, I would spend more time on this layer, the transitions are really a bit too sharp. I think they could be made considerably less obvious. And then the final bit of the puzzle, that little tiny piece that hides the extra hand. It's a small piece, and even though it's small, most of it is masked out. It's true that everything I've done with this image using layers and masks could have been done by overlaying, erasing, and flattening bits of the image. I could never go back and modify the masks. And I mentioned... If I were going to do this again, I would fix a few things. And the final image on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows how I fixed it. I think you'll agree it's better than what I showed last week. My primary justification for using layers and masks, then, is that I'm lazy. I really don't like to do the same job more than once. The ability to save every component piece of an image so that I can return to it at any time and make modifications is a huge time saver. And it's also good for my mental health. In short circuits, I have the worst keyboard ever. I enjoy writing favorable reviews because such a review means that I've found something useful, something that somebody else might like to use. For many years, I enjoyed using a Microsoft Natural Multimedia Keyboard. In fact, I even wrote a few years ago about taking it apart and cleaning it instead of replacing it. Eventually, though, it did need to be replaced, and I bought Microsoft's Natural Ergonomic Keyboard 4000, thinking it would be an upgrade. Wrong. 
I still have a multimedia keyboard at the office, and the key configurations differ significantly between the two models. For unknown reasons, Microsoft decided to place the Insert, Delete, Home, and Page Up and Page Down keys in a non-standard order. Because of this, I often hit End when I want Delete. But a more significant problem is that the printing has worn off several of the keys. E, R, S, D, C, O, L, and M are essentially mystery keys. I am a touch typist, but I still find this unacceptable. Sometimes I do want to see what's on the keys. I have to use a USB keyboard because my current computer has no PS2 ports. But this keyboard is despicable. Why couldn't Microsoft have simply converted the natural media keyboard to USB and then left well enough alone? Bottom line, zero cats for the Microsoft Natural Ergonomic Keyboard 4000. The only good feature I can cite is the ergonomic layout, and Microsoft somehow managed to botch even that with subtle and not-so-subtle changes from its outstanding natural media keyboard layout. For more information, if you want to buy a real dog of a keyboard, check the Microsoft website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And I do have to add one postscript. I complained to Microsoft's support department as just a regular individual, not as a tech writer. And Microsoft has offered to replace the keyboard with a different model. I found one with a keyboard layout that's closer to the one I prefer, but still not an exact match. And it has the same black keys with white letters that the Natural Ergonomic 4000 keyboard has. It's also wireless. I've never been a big fan of wireless keyboards or mice, so I'll let you know how that works out. Possibly because competing organizations such as Komodo offer services that Symantec doesn't, Symantec has agreed to acquire VeriSign's identity and authentication business unit. The VeriSign checkmark appears on more than 90,000 websites in 160 countries, and the business unit would seem to be a good fit with Symantec's existing security business. Symantec says it will incorporate the VeriSign checkmark into a new Symantec logo as soon as the deal closes. Symantec will be acquiring VeriSign's Secure Sockets Layer Certificate Services, Public Key Infrastructure Services, VeriSign Trust Services, and the VeriSign Identity Protection Authentication Service. Symantec would seem to be on a roll. After several years of providing mediocre products, the company's protective products have gained wide acceptance and highly positive reviews starting at about 2009. According to Symantec President and CEO Enrique Salem, people and organizations are struggling to maintain confidence in the security of their interactions, information, and identities online. The challenge is to permit the easy use of digital services and devices without putting personal information at risk. Symantec will be purchasing VeriSign's security business and the majority stake in VeriSign Japan for approximately one and a quarter billion dollars in cash. Symantec says the acquisition will allow it to help businesses incorporate identity security into a comprehensive framework. And this is going to be increasingly important as information is moved away from local computers and private networks to be stored on servers connected to the Internet. I was thinking this week, what's going to be the next step in disk drive pricing? Free? Maybe they pay you to take it away. All right, that's, of course, hyperbole, but not a lot of hyperbole. Remember when handheld calculators cost $400? Then they dropped to around $100, and I bought one. Then they dropped to about $10. 
Now you can buy them for $2 or less in bulk. That applies to hard drives, too. Recently, I needed to buy a 500-gigabyte external hard drive and found one from Seagate for about $70 delivered. Today, I could buy a 2-terabyte hard drive from Newegg for $120. Granted, it's from a second-tier manufacturer, Samsung, and it's relatively slow, just 5,400 RPM, and has just 32 megabytes of cache and a mediocre 8.9 millisecond seek time. But still, that's a huge amount of storage for the cost of about a dozen lunches at a fast-food joint. For just $140, you could buy a faster 7200 RPM Hitachi drive. Western Digital and Seagate both have several 2-terabyte models for less than $200. These are bare drives, of course, intended to be installed inside a computer. External drives have USB circuitry, power supplies, and controllers installed, and these all push the price up. Even so, I did pick up that 500-gigabyte drive for just $70. Newegg lists 70 external 2-terabyte or larger hard drives from $70 to $3,500. $3,500? What do you get for $3,500? Well, you get a 4-terabyte, 8-bay device that weighs nearly 20 pounds. Not exactly a consumer device. But it's hard to find any 2-terabyte external drive that costs much more than $200. After I bought the drive, Newegg sent a message promoting the Seagate FreeAgent DockStar network adapter, which converts a standard USB external device into a network-attached storage device. For reasons that are too complicated to explain now, it turned out that I really didn't need a 500-gigabyte external drive for my notebook. So maybe spending another $70 for the network adapter would allow me to add a network-attached storage device that would be available to any computer on the network. Or maybe I should just assign the external drive to be yet another backup device. Yeah, I think that's what I'll do. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.